Well, today is the feast of Saint Martin of Tours, and uh, he is somebody who gets a lot of attention. Um, if you do the morning office with the church, you'll see that he gets a whole lot of prayers. Most saints just get like a final prayer or a canticle, but he gets his own antiphon refrains and a reading and a response. Why is that? St. Martin was the first person in the Western church to be held up as a saint who had not been martyred. So thank God for him. <laughs> he was so holy that uh, the church said, you know, you don't have to be killed to be venerated. And, um, you know, he, he's one of the first people of the fourth century after um, the persecution of Christians ended to uh, really be a role model. He was born in Hungary, was a pagan, first discovered Christianity when he was 10 years old, um, eventually became a bishop, had a, this cape that he performed a miracle with. The cape was so prized by people, they carried it around as a relic, the places that it was kept. That's where we get the word chapel from cape. And the people who tended it, that's how we get the word chaplain, all because of St. Martin of Tours. Very interesting to have him as a soldier on Veterans Day. Also, our first reading being from Titus. We're in uh, a few days with the letter of Titus. We're jumping through a lot of little, little letters of the, the New Testament this week. Um, Titus is a lot about order in the church. And so today is instructions on how various people are to be uh, good Christians. We're going to hear about how older men should be, how older women should be, and how younger men should be. So ladies, take what you can from it, okay? Let us take a moment to recognize that God showers us with mercy. I used to volunteer with Tom Beta Pi, the National Engineering Honor Society, in a program called Engineering Futures. I was one of about 50 volunteers in the country that would travel around to college campuses on the weekends, and I would lead seminars on the so-called soft skills that people need to succeed in the workplace, and frankly, engineers are notorious for not having. How to run a meeting, how to charter a team, how to think creatively, and how to solve interpersonal problems. One of the things that we talked about in those seminars was how to motivate people. When you want to motivate somebody to do something, all you can do is explain to that person what the consequences of their actions will be. There are two kinds of consequences natural consequences and imposed consequences. When we need to motivate people, we're likely to think of the imposed consequences first. Think about if you've ever had to motivate a child to clean his or her room. If you don't clean your room, you don't get to have dessert. Imposed consequence. If you don't clean your room, you're grounded. But if we can think of natural consequences for why we want somebody to do something, we'll probably do a better job in motivating them. If you clean your room, you'll have more space to play with your friends. If you clean your room, it will be easier to find the toys you want and clean clothes to wear every morning. We can try to apply this analogy to our gospel passage. If God is the master and we are God's servants, why do we do what the master asks of us? Is it because we fear that we'll be punished if we don't do as we're told? 
Or do we do what God asks of us because we know that it's necessary for our salvation? In other words, are we motivated by imposed consequences or by natural consequences? As we grow in relationship with God, I hope we can move away from being primarily motivated by the threat of hellfire towards being motivated by the good things that await the people who carry out God's will. But like most analogies, this one falls flat. I hope to reach a point in my relationship with God when I'm never motivated by threats or benefits. I dream of being solely motivated to do God's will because of my love for Jesus Christ. My motivation shouldn't be based on God's judgment. It should be based on God's love for me. Such a relationship requires me to trust in God, whether or not I understand why God is asking me to do certain things. Who are the people most likely to trust in God unconditionally? Well, in my experience, hospital patients. When we initially face major illnesses, we usually rack our brains, deluding ourselves into thinking that if we could understand why we are sick, then it would all make sense. But hopefully we will eventually realize that human illness is beyond our understanding. We must simply trust that God will care for us, protect us, and lead us through the valley of darkness. But it's not just about facing illnesses. The more we trust God, the more God will ask of us. Just read the lives of the saints, like Martin of Tours, for proof of this. I'd love to stay as the associate pastor of St. John 23rd Parish forever. It's the best job in the world. But I realize that someday the Paul's fathers and the people we serve will probably need me to take on harder, less fun jobs. So naturally, there's a part of me that doesn't want God to push me out of my comfort zone. When the time comes, I hope that I'll be able to pray this prayer of Charles de Foucault. Father, I abandon myself into your hands. Do with me what you will. Whatever you may do, I thank you. I am ready for all. I accept all. Let only your will be done in me and in all your creatures. I wish no more than this, O Lord. Into your hands I commend my soul. I offer it to you with all the love of my heart, for I love you, Lord, and so need to give myself, to surrender myself into your hands, without reserve and with boundless confidence, for you are my Father. It's a beautiful prayer, but it's also kind of scary. When the time comes, will I have sufficiently grown in my relationship with God to trust God completely?